tap into the minds of the innovators and the mavericks who challenge the status quo with new ideas, systems, and solutions. Welcome to Innovation Mavericks. Welcome to Innovation Mavericks. My name is Greg Powell, President and CEO of Five Plan Partners, and Innovation Mavericks is a a vlog we like to do to uh, interact and have an interview process with people we feel like are really getting others to think, to think outside the box, to be able to, to understand not only what's taking place uh, immediately today, but looking into the future and from a historical standpoint. And I'm honored today to have with me Dr. Art Carden, who is a professor at Sanford University Brock School of Business, which I'm very proud to be involved with. Art has been quoted uh, in many media sections, Forbes uh, being one of them, as well as many others. And I was able to get on his calendar to have this interview today. And the reason I wanted to have the interview is because of his new book, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. Outstanding book. I highly recommend it. Art, let me welcome you. And uh, we want to talk about your new book today and, uh, and get your thoughts. All right. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, sure. Well, I have had dialogue with you uh, mm-hmm. through the years and uh, read other pieces that you have written and everything. And always you give me just a, a whole new insight. Well, so to start off with, Leave me alone and I'll make you rich. What was the inspiration for this book? Tell us about that. So my co-author on the book is an economic historian named Deidre Nansen McCloskey. Yes. And uh, she has written a trilogy of books on what she calls the bourgeois era. Uh, The first book, Bourgeois Virtues, came out in 2006. The second book, Bourgeois Dignity, came out in 2010. The third book, Bourgeois Equality, came out in 2016. And actually, not long after I joined the faculty at Samford, we, 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 had a, we had a lunch, and she asked if I wanted to join her to write Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, or to write a fourth volume that kind of encapsulates her overall, her overall story and yeah. kind of helps the world see what economic historians know about how societies got rich, how the West specifically got rich, and how we're witnessing the largest mass movement of uh, the largest mass movement out of extreme poverty in the history of the human species. They're the simple facts of economic history that I, I don't know that a lot of people really appreciate. Yeah. Go ahead. And I'm, yeah. sure that people, I'm not sure people appreciate how much richer we are and how much better life is in 2020 than it was in 1820 or 1720 or 1920, 1920 or even, yeah. for that, even for that matter, 1990. So um, we compiled some data, well, actually Hans Rosling, uh, the Swedish epidemiologist, compiled some data, and then we, we rely on a lot of that data to point out that if you go back to, say, 1980, when I was one year old, I was among the very, very small fraction of one-year-olds one year in the world who'd been vaccinated. Now, an enormous number of, uh, an enormous fraction of one-year-olds have been vaccinated. If we look at things like life expectancy, in the poorest countries in the world today, they're, they're very low by American standards, they're very low by European standards, but they're about 150% of life expectancy in countries like England and France at the beginning of the 19th century. So even the poorest people in the world today can expect to live longer, healthier, richer lives, importantly, where they can read. And that too is something else that we, um, 
that I, I think we sort of tend to take for granted. In terms of the chapters, I, I love the different uh, titles of some of your chapters. Uh, in in uh, number eight, for for example, it says, in fact, none of the seven old pessimisms right. make a lot of sense. Talk about right. that. So people have been pessimistic for a very long time right. and in many different ways, and they've not been right. So you had the, the Malthusian pessimism, for example, that population growth was eventually going to outstrip our ability to feed ourselves. Okay. And here we are, you know, seven plus billion people and a couple of hundred years later, and we have the highest standards of living of any generation that's come before us. The idea that natural resources are in some sense going to be a constraint mm -hmm. on our capacity to, to grow and our capacity to flourish is a pessimism that I think has been refuted. Um, okay. Racist pessimism is something that has been refuted. And of course, racism is something that's characterized virtually every society everywhere for all of human existence. And if you look at, if you look at, at 19th and early 20th century scientific racism, for example, um, it, there was a popular view, for example, that, that uh, Europeans of specifically Northern European extraction were the only people on earth who were capable of, of leading refined, cultured, high income, healthy, wealthy, long lives. It was said of uh, um, it was said of the Chinese, for example, uh, and this is here. I'm, I'm paraphrasing one of the racists of the time. He said, uh, in referring to Chinese workers, he said they can't outwork Americans, but they can underlive them. And we've seen they do a decisive refutation of the racist pessimism in the 20th and early 21st centuries, as uh, as it turns out that what matters is not what what runs through your veins, not what makes up your genetic code or not what color your skin is or what, or what have you, but whether or not you live in a society that values liberty, whether or not you live in a society that dignifies innovation and entrepreneurs. And so those are just two of the pessimisms that have been, I think, pretty decisively refuted by the historical record. And the pessimisms that we see going forward, environmental pessimism, for example. Okay. Yeah, talk or, about those. Yeah, so or so so there's environmental pessimism. There's also pessimism about technology. The argument that you know uh, that artificial intelligence is going to take everybody's jobs, for example, we, we don't think that those are particularly well justified. Again, because as societies get richer, they tend to demand more environmental amenities. Right. First of Second, we're actually dematerializing production. So we're getting, we're getting more and more wealth and more and more value with less and less and less and less material stuff. Uh, and that's a trend that is, is something I think it's very important to keep in mind. When we think about something like inequality, again, um, so McCloskey and I make the argument, probably kind of controversially, that we don't think that inequality per se matters a whole lot. What matters is, is whether or not people have access to sufficient food, clothing, shelter, education, et cetera, to lead a flourishing life. And whether or not, the fact that Jeff Bezos has a lot more than you or me, just I, I don't think is morally important. So in essence, what you're telling me is, and I, I, I've said this on more than one vlog, it's the Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And yeah. from the standpoint, through, through our history here, we've had these pessimisms they constantly uh, reoccur, but the, the reality of it is, is that as we've gone forward, life has actually gotten better. Yes. Yeah, and that's absolutely the case. Yeah, and, and in, in your book, what would you say is the pivotal or a few of the pivotal time frames when, when things really shifted? Talk a little bit about that. So the big change happens primarily in the 18th century. 
right? Um, kind of right around 1750, give or take a couple of decades. And a lot of people, so a lot of standard explanations argue that it was it was nice stuff to have like science or education or natural resources or what have you that caused the industrial revolution, that caused the great enrichment, that caused us to get wealthy. And one of the things that we show is that it turns out that a lot of this stuff again, was nice to have, but it doesn't explain what we're really trying to get at, which is this massive, massive, massive increase in standards of living for the poorest of the poorest in the world. We argue again, science is nice, but for the most part, technology and innovation led science in Europe in the 18th that's and 19th century. That's a great point. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was figuring out how stuff worked and not, or excuse me, it was, it was, it was seeing that something worked and then figuring out how it worked. Right. So uh, one analogy that I've one analogy that I've, I've read in, in, in another book asks whether or not a bartender needs to know chemistry in order to be able to mix a good Manhattan. And I, I think we I think we borrow that in the book or whether like David Beckham needed to learn theoretical physics in order to be one of the greatest <laughs> soccer players who, who, who ever lived. Um, yes. you know, we've been baking bread lo since long before we knew how the chemistry worked. Yes. For example. So um, what mattered, what mattered, we argue, was not this nice Again, these, we should have more of this stuff. It's great. But these weren't the things that were decisive. What happened is that there was at least enough of a change in how we think and speak about innovators to kind of really set innovation ripping and really get things going. And we created a world in which we honor and venerate the people like Jeff Bezos, the people like Steve Jobs, the people like Bill Gates, uh, the people like Sam Walton, mm -hmm. who had probably done more to alleviate genuine human suffering than any people who have ever walked the face of the earth. What, what inspired the title? So the title, um, it, in one of the books, Deidre refers to, she refers to the bourgeois deal as leave me alone and I'll make you rich. And actually one day in the hallway at the Brock School of Business, I was chatting with my then dean, Howard Finch, and he asked me about the title of the book and said, we're thinking about calling it something like the bourgeois deal, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. And he said, well, you should use that as the title. Yeah. So, so Dr. Finch, my, my, uh, my former dean, is the one who suggested that we use Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich as the actual main title of the book. And yeah. fundamentally, that's what's happened. As we, as we kind of leave people alone and let them live their lives and let them innovate and let them come up with cool new stuff and let them, let them not have to ask everybody's permission for every little thing that they want to do. Right. We've got lots and lots of neat stuff. And it's more than just the neat stuff. It's the, it's the increased scope for even the poorest people in the world to live meaningful, flourishing lives in ways that they haven't been able to before. Right. So in, so in essence, if I'm hearing you correctly, a lot of times when you have the strict laws, the regulations and those kind of things, it actually stifles the innovation. Absolutely. So based on that, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. Uh, today in this 21st century, as we move forward and people are able to, to uh, work remotely and and do yeah. these kind of things. Do you feel like that, uh, that, that this is the next wave? We've, you, you talked about 18th century. Here we are in the 21st century, and, and the similarities are actually taking place. That's a really good question, and I'm, I'm not sure what the, the world of remote work kind of post-COVID is going to look like. Yeah. Um, I, I'm an academic, you know, which, which means like the, I, I totally get the whole leave me alone thing, like just, just let, me, let me think and read and write and stuff like that. But um, one of the things that drives innovation is conversation. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I worry just a little bit that um, protracted isolation 
means that you're gonna have fewer of these sort of serendipitous workplace like hallway conversations. Yeah, you run the, 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 working as I say, brainstorm. Yeah. Just a brainstorm. Yeah. Yes. Well, just to, just to give you just a, a perfect example is when you ask about the book. You know, I just happened to be I ran into my dean in the hallway and we were chatting and he suggested that we use this as the main title for the book. And I, I've heard from many many people that. They say this is the best book title I've ever seen, and I, I can't help but I can't help but agree. Um, but I can't really take credit for it. I mean, obviously, it's it's uh, Deidre's phrase, and then you know it became the title for the book because of one of these sort of ser uh, serendipitous um, uh, kind of hallway running into somebody and chatting kind of moments. What would you like to see as the rippling effect of this? In other words, you you've done some incredible things, inspired students, and people like myself, and there's a rippling effect that, that goes with that, that, that gets people motivated or inspired to take action on things. What would you like for the rippling effect of this book to be? I would like for the book to change the degree to which we give ourselves credit for meaning well and sort of move the dial just a little bit toward, again, kind of more esteem for results. In okay. a sense, more, I, I want people to read, I want people who read the book to understand that if they're designing grocery stores for Kroger, you know, okay. that's feeding the hungry. If they're stitching shirts at a factory in Bangladesh, that's clothing the naked. If they're, um, it, it, like, if you're a good building contractor, for example, mm -hmm. you, you, you are fundamentally a wealth creator doing a great thing for the world to understand that um, cooperation, exchange, and innovation is the cornucopia. That's the sort of horn of plenty that, um, that has, has, has made, has, has expanded so many possibilities mm -hmm. for so many different people. I would love for people to read the book and see how what looks like, what might look like mundane or not terribly important or terribly exciting tasks make a really big difference in the grand scheme of things. That, that's great. So, and, and if I heard you correctly as well, that if you're an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. if you own a business, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, and embrace it, that you're making a difference in, in helping others, helping uh, lives, uh, that there's a lot of fulfillment in that. And yeah. the rippling effect of that is big as well. And sometimes maybe that's not expressed in this, uh, uh, this, the, this time frame that we're currently in. Well, you know, someone might think, you know, I, I want to educate people, say, uh, mm -hmm. but um, I'm not, I'm not a teacher or a writer, or whatever. I'm, I'm just good at, at at fixing brakes on cars. Well, okay, fantastic. So if you're fixing the brakes on my cars and doing a really, really good job of it, creating wealth that way, you're freeing up my time, energy, and attention to be a better That's teacher, okay. better writer, etc. So, um, in fact, one of the articles we we we've written in the wake of the book being published points out that. There, there's literally, there's no way to identify literally every single person who has a, who's had a hand in the production of this from the people who farmed the trees that became the paper to like the folks at y'all's office who have helped my wife and me um, so that I can, so I can, I can focus less on worrying about whether we have a will, for example, and uh, more on more about whether or not the book's going to be any good. So, Art, let me, uh, you know, at, at the end of the book, you talk mm -hmm. about Adam Smith revealed yeah. in the final chapter. Uh, if, if, as, we, as we start to close this vlog here, could you just elaborate on why you picked that as the, mm -hmm. uh, the topic of the chapter and where that takes us as we, we end the book and we go, wow, that's, 
Yeah. That's inspirational. So the way that a, uh, the way that a friend of mine put it one time said, no matter how famous he is, Adam Smith is still underrated. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people who, who have read Smith or who know Smith, maybe know like a caricature cartoon version Mm -hmm. of, uh, of Adam Smith that allegedly extols like narrow self-interest in the way that we try to teach our kids not to behave. But Smith, the more, the more I'm, the more I learned about Smith, the more I come to believe that his most important book was actually the theory of moral sentiments, the first edition of which was published in 1759, and the final edition of which was published in 1790, rather than The Wealth of Nations. So um, theory of moral sentiments, I argue, is kind of the key to understanding the Smith of The Wealth of Nations. The Smith of The Wealth of Nations is a key to understanding 19th century political economy. And if you understand all of that, everything sort of starts to make sense. There's a fantastic passage in, uh, well, in Wealth of Nations um, in which he, Smith, refer, Smith argues that we, we appeal not to the humanity of the butcher, the baker, the brewer in order to get our dinner, but to their self-interest. We refer to their own interest. Okay. And um, a lot of people take that as kind of a Smith's endorsement of selfishness, but I think what he's, what he's really getting at there is that if we want people to do for us, we have to be prepared to do for them. And in the case of the butcher, the baker, the brewer, they have, they've got their own lives to live. They've got mm-hmm. their own families to feed. Um, they could have a, an, an infinite line of people who want bread, who want meat, who want beer. And they've got to come up with some way to decide, okay, who gets, who gets what I have to offer. And if we, if we want the butcher, the baker, the brewer to feed us, we can't simply show up and say, okay, you, you, you're obliged to feed me. We have to make them better off. Yeah. In some way, better off as they choose to define it, because they too are are equal and dignified moral agents. And um, I think adopting that perspective, this sort of radical equality, this idea that it doesn't matter who your dad was, it doesn't matter what family you came from, it doesn't matter you know what fraternity you're part of or something like that. Um, that you are that that these are um, that everyone is fundamentally equal and everybody fundamentally has the right to say no to any offer. Yeah. And that we argue is the, the match that sort of lit the fire of the great enrichment. Great explanation. It's a fantastic book. Leave me alone and I'll make you rich. Uh, I highly recommend it as a great read, not only from a historical perspective, but to relate to relate to today and what's going on. Uh, Art, um, I can't thank you enough. Sure, hey, uh, thank your you. insight is always invaluable to me. Sanford University and Brock School of Business is very fortunate, and those well, students are too, to, to have you there to, to lecture and give insight. And as an alum of Sanford University, I am thrilled that uh, you are there. So uh, with that, sir, we thank you. Uh, congratulations on the book. I can't wait to read the reviews. And uh, anytime you want to run ideas our way, please let me know. Certainly. This has been Innovation Mavericks. We thank you for joining us. And hopefully you've gotten some great ideas and understand the importance of innovation in our economy and society today. Have a great week.